My name is Megan Bellflower. I am a historical fiction writer and your host of Soda Pop Chronicles. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about post-World War II culture. And that kind of sounds boring, but I promise you it's very, very interesting. And a lot of that culture has to do with the move into the suburbs after the war. And so we're going to be talking all about the wonderful land of suburbia. The suburbs. Almost as much written about as Madison Avenue. And just as much in need of reflection. Like Madison Avenue, life in the suburbs has its good moments and others not so good. The baby boom and the suburban boom happened at the same time. And if you don't know what the baby boom was, it was a time after the war where, of course, men were coming home from the war and they hadn't seen their wives or their girlfriends in a long time and uh, if you put two and two together uh, a lot of babies were conceived <laughs> after the war this really created the need for more space uh, better housing and so developers began to buy land on the outskirts of cities and they used these mass production techniques to build modest inexpensive houses and to build them very quickly they got these houses up very fast another thing that helped was the gi bill created low-cost mortgages for soldiers returning home after the war and so this meant that it was cheaper for these families to buy a suburban home than it was for them to rent an apartment in the city and if you remember, during the Great Depression and before that, a lot of people lived in the city because they worked in the city. A lot of people didn't have cars at that time, and so they had to live where they worked. But this new boom of people being born really created this need for, again, more space. And so, these houses were really great for young families. They had big open floor plans and family rooms and backyards where the kids would climb in the trees and the white picket fences and this idea of the American dream. Suburban neighborhoods began to get nicknames like Fertility Valley or The Rabbit Hutch. And if you don't know about our history and rabbits and pregnancy, <laughs> um, an old way of testing for pregnancy was to take the urine of a pregnant woman and inject it into a rabbit. And if the rabbit died, then the woman was told that she was pregnant. And so people would often say, instead of saying that they were pregnant, they would say the rabbit died. And so I'm guessing the rabbit hutch has to do with the amount of babies that were being born in these neighborhoods. The leading 
person in the suburban growth was a developer named William J. Levitt. And Levitt built these really cheap cookie cutter kind of houses. And these houses typically had about four rooms. They were placed on a 6,000 square foot lot and they sold for a whopping $6,900. A lot less than houses today. (laughs) I actually had to keep researching this because I wasn't sure if that was accurate because I felt like that was way too cheap. But it's true, I found this in multiple places. I really wish that houses today were <laughs> were that cheap. And so other builders began following this pattern. The quiet towns and villages surrounding the city found themselves in the midst of a roaring housing boom. New developments on every hand. Some well-planned, well-designed, blending naturally into the terrain. Some seem to have been thrown together in monotonous rows as the project builders raced to keep up with the demand for more and more homes. About 13 million new homes were sold during this decade after World War II. Because of this growth and this development of life outside of the city, people started really needing cars because they had to commute now to the city. They didn't live in the city anymore. They couldn't just walk or ride the train or the bus to their jobs. And so automobile sales went up. In 1945, Americans owned about 25 million cars. By 1965, the number tripled to 75 million cars. That new Nash 600 and Nash Ambassador are two beautiful automobiles. You mean you've seen them? Seen them? I've driven them. And believe me, I never knew what driving meant before. Is the Nash 600 really big? Even bigger than you thought it was going to be. And how about economy? Does the new Nash 600 really deliver 25 to 30 miles on a gallon? Like a breeze, Kurt. But because more cars were sold, there was a need for better roads. President Eisenhower had gone over to Europe during the war, and he had seen these interstates and these highways that Europe used. And he was inspired by that, and he wanted to do that in America. But he, I guess he saw it more of a military and defense uh, thing, because he thought that if he created interstates, then he could move troops and he could move supplies all throughout the country. But now, of course, we know that interstates are really great for travel, are great for the common person to use. But he really saw it as more of a defense mechanism. So Congress in 1956, because of Eisenhower, they passed the National Interstate and Defense Highway Act. And this now linked the entire United States um, together with roads. And these roads were about four lanes wide. And so this also helped promote suburban development. 
So this move into the suburbs was not just a location change. We saw a shift in a lot of different areas as well. We saw a shift in the social realm, the cultural realm, and also the spiritual realm. What kind of ended up happening, because these houses were very cookie cutter and they were close together, is that people found themselves you know, socializing with their next door neighbors. They were sharing recipes and helping each other mow their lawns and babysitting and going over and hanging out with each other, playing bridge. We kind of started to see a shift in the way people thought about themselves socially. So what these neighborhoods ended up promoting was, uh, quote, fitting in and adaptability. You wanted to avoid all controversial traits, anything that would make you seem different. So we really began to see people conforming and really wanting to fit in and just be a normal American living in a normal American neighborhood. During this time, uh, religious activity was at an all-time high. Church membership rose from 50% of the population in 1940 to 63% of the population in 1960. Americans in these new suburban neighborhoods valued the church and how they promoted family togetherness and they were a good source of social events. And there was a slogan around this time, and the slogan was, the family that prays together stays together. Another huge part of American life in the suburbs and after the war was television. And I talked about this a little bit in my last episode on TV censorship. But television became a huge, huge part of daily life. The time the average American spent watching television grew from about four and a half hours a day in 1950 to more than five hours a day in 1960 five hours a day, the average American sat in front of the TV and watched television programming. I mean, that just seems like a lot to me, but but I don't know. I mean, the TV had just come out. It was probably this brand new thing and everybody wanted to be a part of it. So in 1954, because TV was such a big deal and people were no longer interested in sitting down at the table to eat dinner when their favorite TV program was on. Of course, we did not have a way to record the TV shows, and you didn't want to miss them or else, you know, you wouldn't be able to see them again. They didn't have DVDs or anything like that. And so the Swanson Company introduced frozen TV dinners so that you could enjoy TV and dinner at the same time without missing your favorite programs. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. 
Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven-ready in individual heat-and-serve trays. With Swanson TV turkey dinners, you just heat and serve, and you serve big and hearty slices of moist, tender Swanson turkey. The most successful new magazine of the post-war era was actually TV Guide, believe it or not. So what was popular on TV for people in the suburbs? Uh, situation comedies were very popular, and these were shows like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, and I Love Lucy, one of my favorite shows still. And these were shown to millions of suburban viewers. The people that looked to suburban neighborhoods or lived in suburban neighborhoods and saw this as the social ideal, they were able to look at this world that they lived in and they saw a world of strong, devoted parents living in these brand new houses and confronting problems that could be resolved in 30 minutes. They were able to see a mirror of the way that they were living and that helped even further promote life in the suburbs. But of course it wasn't that simple. It was a lot more complicated than what these TV shows showed Americans and they kind of ended up giving unrealistic goals and ideals for these suburban dwellers. One of these ideals that we saw in these situational comedies was the idea of the happy housewife, the woman that had dinner ready when her husband came home and placed slippers on his feet, had a fire going, gave him his favorite cigar and his newspaper, and the children were quiet and everything was peaceful. Well, unfortunately, uh, life in the suburbs were not always this perfect for women. While the kids are young, many of the mothers try to stay at home, which isn't always so easy either. Some people even think that maybe the 1950s had a confining effect on women. Um, advice books at this time and women's magazines urged women to leave the workforce and embrace their roles as wives and mothers. And if you remember, during the war effort, women often had to take on the jobs of men because all the men were fighting in the war, you had those images of like Rosie the Riveter and these women that were working in factories and things. And now all of a sudden, you know, they were being told to stay at home. So I'm sure that was quite confusing for the woman uh, during this time when they had their feeling of, of doing something great. And then they were told that they couldn't do that anymore. Basically, the, at this point, women were told that the most important job that they could do was to bear children 
and to raise children. For the women that wanted to work, they, they yearned for more than this. And I'm not at all saying that raising children is unfulfilling work. No, there are definitely women. This is what they desire. But for other women during this time that wanted to pursue a career and were told that they couldn't, I'm sure that was incredibly hard for them. These television shows that I mentioned before and these magazines and all of these ads, there are t- they were a ton of ads that featured the housewife and her happily working and using these products like Tide and vacuum cleaners and everything, they all described a housewife as like the happiest person on the planet. To women that were not quite happy during this time, they believed that everyone else but them felt this way. So I'm sure that that was a little bit isolating for the women who weren't happy in their roles. This whole idea of Rosie the Riveter and the female factory worker that was celebrated during World War II. And you know the famous images. Basically, these these images gave way to the happy housewife image. Which is interesting because I didn't know that the housewife, happy housewife image was created after World War II. Um, I always thought that that was just considered the traditional role throughout history for a woman and that it wasn't until, you know, later that that began to change. But, you know, I I don't know. I guess guess it's a newer thing than than what we thought it was. Again, with television, uh, television shows seem to really show the American family as... Um, a family that was led by a hard-working dad and an apron-clad mom. And so advertisers during these TV programs typically showed images of housewives as these consumers were really preoccupied with trying to figure out which brand they were going to use of detergents or vacuum cleaners, kind of like what I talked about a little bit earlier. Let's face it, a mother's work is never done. I wouldn't mind all the baby's wash if it came out better. My Betsy's diapers are kind of rough and scratchy, not as soft as they should be. Well, goodness, baby things need the safest possible soap. Ivory Snow, does it make a difference? You bet. I remember the first time I did Timmy's diapers in Ivory Snow. I was amazed at how soft they were. Heaps softer than those I'd been doing with detergents. I just knew diapers that soft were safe. No harsh deposits to irritate tender skin. Ivory Snow got all Timmy's wash kitten soft. Fresh and sweet smelling, too. The thing that is interesting is that Hollywood, around the time of the 1930s, showed women like Joan Crawford, uh, Joan Bennett, and Katherine Hepburn, and they portrayed these women as Uh, feisty and very independent. However, after World War II, domestic um, virtues were placed in front of this feisty and independent um, view. 
And so then we began to see stars like Debbie Reynolds and Doris Day. Even women's fashion began to shift. We saw more women that it was important for them to have like tight waist and sharply defined um, bosoms. (laughs) And then these long skirts with petticoats. But unfortunately, uh, women's discontents They were not really spoken of. They were not something that was articulated usually to other women or to their husbands because they assumed that all of these advertisements and these TV shows must be true, that all women must be happy and there must be something wrong with me if I'm not happy. So they just went unspoken Nobody really talked about this, um, except for there was a, a book, and it was called The Feminine Mystique, uh, that came out in, in the 1960s, I believe, which was really the first book to talk about women's issues, but it talked about this unnamed problem. And really what that problem was, was uh, depression and anxiety. Let's talk about you a little bit. How are you feeling? Are you you feeling as good as we feel today? I sincerely hope so. But I'd especially like to talk to you housewives and mothers, and you're really busy gals, that just keep going all the time. Sometimes as you go about your daily routine, you get the feeling that you just don't have enough energy to finish out the day. Well, if you do feel that way, or anybody in your family feels that way, don't just ignore it and wait for it to go away. Uh, Around this time, there was uh, psychotropic drugs that were being introduced to women uh, because of some of these feelings that they were having around this time that they couldn't explain. And so it really didn't change until about the 1960s and 70s. Things began to improve, and women were able to speak up about their emotions. So so I've, I've kind of talked about this life in the suburbs and this idea of uh, conformity. There was another group, however, though, and they were social critics, and they looked at this bland, quote, perfect life, and they weren't, they weren't happy with it. And so a counterculture formed, and these people were called the Beats, or uh, the Beat Generation came out, and they rejected the suburban cookie-cutter life. There were a lot of books and art that came out of the Beat Generation uh, criticizing this, uh, this life in the suburbs. And I'm actually going to talk about that hopefully in my next episode. Um, we'll get into the beat generation and, and the and the beatniks, which is not all what you think that it is. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, this idea that we think of of the sub- happy suburban life is actually fairly new. And at least in my generation, I know a lot of people that are actually moving back into the city. And I I am one of those people. I live in an apartment next to our baseball stadium in in the city that I live in. And I thoroughly enjoy being closer to school and to work and everything like that. 
Um, I guess it really just depends on, on what you want and what you desire. Everybody has different things that they are passionate about and different jobs or different roles they feel like that they want to partake in. And so this is not meant at all to deter women from being um, mothers and housewives. I think that's an incredibly important role. Um, I also think that working is an important role and neither of these roles should be uh, demeaned by any means. I think that we should live in a world of, 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 uh, of freedom to choose what you want. And I'm, I'm glad that things are, are getting a little bit better on that realm for everybody. But we have made only a beginning. Our research must be broadened and deepened. It must reach into new and untried areas. The effort will be costly, and it will require the active and continuing participation of all elements of the community. But in the end, all will benefit. In better homes, better communities, a better America as our heritage to the future. I'm really excited to tell you guys that I have the Twitters. <laughs> it's a new disease I came up with. I'm kidding. Um, I'm on Twitter now. My uh, Twitter handle is at SodaPopChronic. My page is called SodaPop Chronicles. And I have a lot of fun things on there. A lot of little facts and pictures about vintage culture. So come join in the fun. I'd love to hear from you. If you have requests for things you would like to hear about on the show, I would love to hear them on my Twitter page. Uh, I would love for you to leave a review on iTunes of this show so that it can keep going and so that other people can, can hear it as well uh, and find me. And... Uh, there are several people that have left some really kind reviews for me on on iTunes. Uh, Mysterious Radio in K-Town left me a, a very sweet review, and you should go check out her podcast. It's really great. And um, yeah, I just I want to thank you guys for listening. And uh, remember, if you are offered roast beef at the Nevada test site, don't eat it. <laughs>